Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 is where we are as we're working through this letter in the New Testament. Coming down to the last chapter, a few messages left here. As you're finding that, let me pray. I think we need to pray. I think we always need to pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, kingdoms come, kingdoms go, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for this day. You have ordained November 8th, 2020, in the wise, secret counsel of your will, you've ordained that we would be here, Lord, in this moment, that our lives would be in this time. Lord, we are needy people this morning. We're anxious, we're tired, we don't know what the future holds, we're maybe feeling shameful about things in the past. We're worried about things that are vexing us right now. We have family problems. We have cultural problems. We have vocational problems. We have health problems. We need you, Lord. And of all the worthy conversations that we need to have, nothing could be more important than giving our attention to your word this morning. So give us a heart to think deeply. Give us a mind to hear what you say to your people. May your church be built up and encouraged and fortified. And may any listening, whether in this room or on the internet, that do not yet know Jesus, as we've already prayed, may you, by your kind and merciful grace, give them eyes to see and a heart to believe the good news of your Son so that they can be reconciled to you. Help me now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question before we get into our text. How do you feel about being weird? Are you okay with with being strange, with being an outcast, with being somebody that is mostly looked down upon by the people around you? Well, if you are a Christian who believes the Bible, which, by the way, is the only type of Christian there really is, can can I get a amen, then in the eyes of the majority of the world around you, you are extremely strange. You believe peculiar things. Just a short summary of the things that you believe if you are a believer in the Bible. You believe that God has existed, and there is no beginning and no end. So this thing that we sort of mark our lives by time is just a creation of God. We're bound by it, but he's not. He's outside of it, which is a concept which we can't even wrap our minds around. And this God has created everything that is out of nothing. And he created this creation for his glory And he even allowed the pinnacle of his creation, Adam and Eve, our first parents, to rebel against him. Now, this didn't surprise him. He knew that it was going to happen. In fact, the Bible tells us that he planned for it even before the foundations of the earth. 
and this rebellion that has tainted us all has happened in a, for a purpose that we cannot fully understand, but we can see in the scriptures for the wise display of his glory. And the way that he would bring his glory from this fall would be to send his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, to not crush and destroy his enemies by brute force, but through an utter and spectacular act of humility by coming and living amongst his creation that has rebelled against him in the highest form of treason and to allow God the Son in the flesh to be put to death by the very creation that he created as we read earlier from Colossians chapter 1 and to bear the wrath that should have been ours, and then to rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and then to ascend to heaven, to promise to return, and to come back and finally and fully right every wrong, fill every valley, level every mountain, cure every disease, and bring justice for every injustice. The world thinks that we're crazy for believing these things. In the world's eyes, these things are foolish. The world scoffs at what I just said. But if you're a Bible-believing Christian, this is what you believe. And our text this morning will help us deal with scoffers, with a world that scoffs at the promise of our Lord. Let me read our text, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through just got one chapter left in 2 Peter. We're going to deal with the first seven verses. Next week we'll be dealing with an important text. Then we're going to take a break because my son is getting married, and I think I'll be here, but I'm going to be doing the wedding, so I don't know that I'm going to be any, in any shape to actually preach in a couple weeks. So then we're going to take a break, and then we'll finish up 2 Peter chapter 3 before December or in early December, Lord willing. Listen to these words now from, from Peter in chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in these last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Well, in this text, I think we see three truths. We see a lot of truths, but I'm going to focus on three truths to help us deal with scoffers. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll work our way back through them. God has spoken, God has acted, and God is patient. God has spoken, 
God has acted and God is patient. Now the context, as you know, if you've been journeying through 2 Peter with us, is that Peter is concerned about false teachers in the church. In his first letter, 1 Peter, he was concerned about really persecution from outside the church. And, and in a couple decades from when Peter would write these letters, the Roman Empire would start to persecute Christians in, in despicable and terrible ways. And he was preparing them for the persecution that would come from the outside. And second, Peter, he's really warning them in a very severe way about the false teachers that will arise from within the church. And that's what we spent for the past couple of weeks, going through 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter is describing the false teachers and then their message, and he's wanting to warn the church. And in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he's wanting to equip the church with a, a kind of dependence on the word of God that he's wanting to tell them is everything that they need. And now in chapter 3, he turns his attention to scoffers, whether they were the false teachers or just kind of the general mood of the culture around them. He is now zeroing in on this sort of cultural message that the Christians were dealing with in the first century that was a kind of cynicism. And notice what's going on in these seven verses. The people around the church, the Christians at the time, were saying, you know what? Nothing ever changes since the fathers fell asleep, the text says. And what that means is all the way back since the patriarchs, hundreds of years ago, even when Abraham and Moses and all of them were around, nothing ever seems to change. Where is your God? The world just seems to be getting worse. And so what's the use of living for God? This isn't really true is what the scoffers were saying. And how does Peter respond to that? He responds with three truths I think that we see. First, God has spoken. God has spoken. Look at what he says in verse two. He says he's wanting to stir them up by way of sincere reminder. He wants to stir up their mind. And he says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So there I think really he's, he's, he's referring to the Old Testament, the, holy, the, the message of the holy prophets. And when he speaks about the commandment of the Lord Jesus through the apostles, he's speaking of what will become what we know of as the New Testament. So the Old Testament is written by prophets. The New Testament is written by apostles. And we can know, as we went over in chapter one, that what we have is the word of God. In fact, look at 2 Peter chapter one, the last verse, verse 21. It says that men, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when we looked at that verse, we took some time to think about how that truth actually applies to not just the Old Testament, but also applies to the New Testament writers. So we have this word that we can know that as 2 Peter chapter 3, Paul says, was breathed out by God. And notice in particular, that he's speaking in the context of his authority as an apostle and what we have is the New Testament, that this commandment comes through these, these apostles. God has spoken. He's told his people what would happen. And so when we look around in the world and we see back then in the first century and now in the 21st century, when we are tempted to be fearful or anxious, we can know that there is a God who has spoken beforehand and has told us what will happen. So what can we take away from this? 
well, why is this so important? And how does this apply to us today? Well, first, friends, I think we should remember, as we have said many times in our study of 2 Peter, that we, we can trust our Bibles. We can trust that this is God's word to us. It's sufficient. Look again at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 there a couple weeks ago when we started out this letter. It, this is what Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises. So he's given us everything that we need through his word, through his spirit that dwells in us, through the community of the imperfect local church. We have all that we need and we can trust our Bibles. God's word is sufficient, but we have to understand how the Bible works. The Bible does not work like an answer book that we just sort of read for secret codes or secret messages or, or kind of snowflakes in July, words from nowhere that just sort of help us. We have to understand the whole comprehensive narrative, what the Bible is saying. It's a story. It's a picture of God's intervention in mankind's life. And when we see it that way, we come to the Bible appropriately, not looking for magic clues or, or a kind of magic eight ball but a story that we find ourselves in that makes sense of the world around us with overarching truths. And so we, we need to know that God has spoken. And, and one application of this, finally, before we move on to the second point, is that, friends, we don't, we don't need a new word or a new revelation. Uh, I've, I've spoken to this before several times. That there are people, in our religious leaders in our day, that, that rely on a fresh or new word. And they even call themselves apostles. If a person calls himself an apostle, they are either calling themselves that out of theological ignorance or they are a wolf that you need to run from. Either way, don't listen to anybody that calls himself an apostle. All the apostles are dead. And the foundation of the apostles has been laid and you don't have to lay a foundation again. Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that the foundation of the apostles, which is the teaching of Christ, these men that God especially commissioned to give us the word, to give us everything we need, has been laid. And so we need not look for a fresh new word. And by the way, those that do preach God's word do not need to adorn it with all of this goofiness to make it more appealing to the world. So we have this word and God has spoken and we can fasten ourselves to it. And what Peter is saying here and the particular word that he's fastening the church to is that even though the world is very confusing even though you're anxious and fretful about how things are going, Jesus is coming back. And that's the word that the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century needs to fast themselves to. So God has spoken. Secondly, God has acted. God has acted. Look again at verse 5. So he's saying that these scoffers are coming and they're saying, you know, it's like God is this watchmaker and he wound the world up, maybe, and they might sort of tacitly admit that the world was created by God, 
But what they are saying in verse 4 is, where, where's the promise of his coming? You know, he's not involved in creation. For ever since Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all of the others and Joseph have died, nothing seems to change. God's not active in creation. And what does Peter say in verse 5? He says, no, God has acted. In fact, not only is, has he acted, he is continually acting. He says they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the word was formed out of water through, the, through water by the word of God. So Peter is telling the church that against the message of the scoffers that say that now there's no real God, he's not really involved, Peter's reminding them, just look around. God has made everything out of nothing, and he's done it by his powerful word. Creation itself is a witness of God's action and involvement and care in the world. Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist says, when I look at the handiwork of God's creation, I'm just reminded of how mindful God is, even of mankind. In fact, Romans chapter 1, when Paul is indicting all of humanity for the rebellion against God, listen to Paul's logic about part of the culpability of mankind. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his, speaking of God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning all people, are without excuse. In other words, we should be able to look up and see the the leaves and the mountains and the rivers and the valleys and creation and all of its splendor, and we should be without excuse. You guys laugh at me, but you know, most Saturday nights, I watch BBC Planet Earth or Blue Planet And the reason I watch that, first of all, the videography is just stunning. But, and that that Englishman's voice is soothing, it helps me fall asleep. But the, it, it causes me really to worship. Because you see that there is this small little amphibious creature on some remote island in the middle of the Pacific that has been created in such intricate glory that maybe nobody will ever see. And what is that for? Why is that even necessary? It's necessary to display the glory of God. And the current situation that we may find ourselves in, whether the first century or whether the 21st century, what it does is it causes us to look down, look down, and look within. And the Bible the whole time is telling us through the glory of creation to look up and know that God not only has acted, but he is acting. In fact, he's preserving all things. He's, he's keeping it together. We, we read that this morning in the call to worship in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, speaking of Jesus. He's before all things, and think about this, meditate on this. In him, all things hold together. Your cells and your body right now are being held together by God, by Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, speaking of Jesus the Son, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, 
meditate on this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. There are stars and galaxies so remote that no telescope can even come close to reaching them. And Jesus, just for the sake of his glory, is holding them together actively by the word of his power. I'm not really even sure what that looks like or what it means, but I know it's really awesome. And not just some remote galaxy. Come on now. We are so pressed. Right now the world is saying, look down and be worried. And creation is preaching to us, look up and worship. God has acted. Scoffers will come. He's acting. And not only in some remote galaxy, in you and me. Paul, preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, says, for in him we live and move and have our being. You got up this morning and you brushed your teeth, hopefully, and you dressed yourself and you came to church and Jesus was holding it all together for his glory and your sake. And listen to what one of Job's friends says. Now, Job's friends... um, got it wrong a lot, but they said a lot of true things. They just applied true things wrongly. And in Job chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, I think this is Elihu speaking. He says this, and it's really, it's really profound and true. Speaking of God, he says, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Think about that. We don't think about that. We, 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 we bebop in like we got this thing under control. And this passage is saying that, you know, if God just withdrew his preserving, sustaining care of all things, we would return to dust. And not only is God preserving in some mysterious, glorious, majestic way, He is working in, cooperating with the things that He has created, superintending them, directing them, and all of their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, listen to this, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things. The electing and non-electing of kings and presidents, the rise and fall of empires, the, 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 the crying of a baby, the, the, the everything, the breathing of every breath, the, the, the look of every glance, everything he has in some mysterious way, not only has, but is and will work it all according, according to the counsel of his will. And so when scoffers come and say, well, man, the world is out of control. Nero's on the throne in the first century and is persecuting Christians. Or the markets are crashing or the virus is spreading or this or that or whatever. We might be tempted to buy into the sermon that the world is preaching. And Peter's telling his readers and he's telling us, no, God has acted 
God's acted in creation. And he's acting now to hold it all together. There's just a couple, before we move on to the final point, just a few important consequences of this. Friends, think about this. Let's, Let's go from the cosmic level to the personal level. An important consequence of God's action and continuing activity in all creation is that we, we are the Lord's. Your body is the Lord's. He, everything about you is the Lord's. You, you're a contingent being. You're the created. We're the pot, not the potter. We're the clay. It's, it's his prerogative that governs my life. We were created for him not the other way around and God has created us for purposes and one thing that is raging in our in our world today is a I think a severe and terrible confusion about what it even means to be human to be male and female God has created, we even see this in the echoes of, we see this clearly in creation. God has created all of his world with a design, with a complementary design. He's created the night to complement the day. He has created the moon to complement the sun. He's created the water to complement the earth. And listen, dear ones, especially you young people who are being savage savaged by a false narrative. He has created males to complement females and females to complement males. It's a complementary design. Even the way your bodies fit together as male and female is meant to complement one another. And it's part of the way God has created you. But we live in an age of scoffing and utter rebellion. And the political and cultural winds are blowing fiercely against this clear and evident biblical truth. And I want to say that I'm particularly thankful for uh, Pastor Tyler, one of our pastors who oversees our student and youth ministry, who is starting a series of messages on these very issues regarding just human sexuality. And he's doing it in a clear, biblical way, but with compassion. Because, friends, we need more than just a, a kind of old-fashioned, dogmatic adherence to truth, as important as that is. We need to realize that our young people are facing political and cultural winds that are blowing against the clear teaching of Scripture, and we must be able to communicate and be a safe place for them to think about and talk about all of the false messages that they are hearing in school and in culture and all over the place. And so if you are a young person today, and you are wrestling with desires sexual desires that the Bible clearly speaks against. I want you to know that this church is a safe place for you to talk about those things and to get counsel and biblical wisdom on. And if you're a young person that is even wrestling with 
how God created you and you are hearing people around you that are saying it's okay for you to declare your own gender, then I want you to know if you're wrestling with those things, first of all, dear one, dear one, you are being lied to. God has good purposes in his creation. And if you're wrestling with those things, this church, Pastor Tyler, Chelsea, the youth leaders, are safe people to talk to those things about and to lead you into a biblical understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female. And we as a church must be a place that has conviction, but conviction with tenderness and compassion. Because let's not trick ourselves, and this is another reason why, let me just go on a rabbit trail and prepare myself to respond to emails all week. This is why, friends, you should prioritize the local life in the local church. And when you prioritize the athletic advancement of your child, and you, you make church secondary because of travel ball, and your kid only has a loose connection with the youth group or with church or with the Bible, and you never read the Bible to your child yourself, know that Monday through Friday, and that we're on, they're on the internet, they are being discipled by a godless world that is scoffing at the God of creation. And 30 or 45 minutes of a sermon every six to eight weeks, friends, is not enough. It's not enough to detox them from the scoffing of the world. Now, this church isn't perfect. My preaching is mediocre at best. But come on, friends. We're in this together, and we need to do life together. And God has given us everything that we need. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit that dwells in his people. He's given us each other to help one another. But we sell ourselves out to the cultural winds, to sports, to academics, to the internet, to TikTok, to this, that, and the other. And all these things are discipling our kids. And we look up after a decade, and we wonder why they believe what they believe. God, help us. And if you are there, dear parent, I am not, I am not condemning you. (laughs) Parenting is hard, isn't it? And we need each other. We need each other. And the world is fierce. And our enemy is not neutral. And our children hear the message of scoffing all day long. And God has given you if you have been made alive by him. If you are a believer, he has given you weapons of warfare to fight. So don't lay down. Don't lay down. Don't give in. Don't whine. Fight. Roll up your sleeves. And entrust yourself and your family to a good and faithful God. And finally, God is patient. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the patience of the Lord. 
Look again at verses 6 and 7. So he says, it got us spoken over and against the message of these scoffers. And he says that God has acted and is acting. And then for the second time in his letter, we looked at this in 2 Peter chapter 2, but for the second time, he makes reference to God's judgment of the world in the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And he says, right after he talks about how God has acted in creation, he says that God has also acted in judgment. Look at verse 6. He says, now by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's speaking of Genesis chapter 6 when God shook the etch-a-sketch, and he reset creation, and he, he poured out his wrath on a wicked world. And what Peter is saying here clearly is that that Old Testament picture of God's judgment in Genesis chapter 6 was a kind of shadow that's pointing towards the sure and certain judgment of God that will be that will come when Jesus returns. Verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. That's the judgment that will come at the second coming of Jesus, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so he's, he's wanting to fortify the Christians and saying, hold on, God is faithful. He's not unjust. Justice will happen. But in the meantime, and this is what we'll get into next week, God is being profoundly patient. Profoundly patient. And God is preaching in his patience. He's preaching to the world to come to himself. In fact, that's what he did in, in the day of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, listen to Peter's words in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3. There's a lot going on in this text, but let me just draw a, a conclusion or two to give you a picture of the patience of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, meaning on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the story of salvation for all of us. The righteous, the Son of God, was put forward to bear the wrath of God for us who are unrighteous. That's the gospel. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 18 is glorious. Verse 18 is a kind of mini gospel in itself. And listen to verse 19, in which he, speaking of Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, what's going on there? Who are these spirits in prison? Well, there have been multiple interpretations of this through the history of the church, I think the best is that it's speaking about the world, the population of the world at the time of Noah who were imprisoned in their sin. And so I think what this text is saying is that Christ, the spirit of Christ, is preaching through the life of Noah to a scoffing world. And that those decades that Noah was obedient to God and building the ark. Can you imagine that? I mean, that, that wasn't like a weekend. That, that took decades. 
and the world is scoffing at Noah. You, you believe that? You believe, really, that a flood is come, going to come? Come on, New Testament Christian. You actually believe that Jesus is going to return someday and will judge those that don't trust in him and that there is an eternal hell that awaits for all those that don't trust? You really believe that? For decades, this is Noah's task to build this boat in the face of scorn. And what this text is saying is that the spirit of Christ is working and proclaiming the patience of God through Noah when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now in the Old Testament, God's patience was a few decades as Noah hammered together some wood for a massive boat. But in our day, God's patience is centuries. It's centuries. The kindness and long-suffering of the patience of God. So we are like modern-day Noahs that God is preaching the gospel to, to the world. A flood is coming. Get on the ark. And what's the ark? It's not a boat. It's Christ. He's coming again to finally and fully judge the world. And by the way we live in this world is meant to be a kind of sermon, a kind of picture of the patience of God. God has judged sin on the cross and he will finally and fully bring that judgment to place when Jesus comes again. And the gap between Jesus' first coming and the second coming is a picture of the patience and kindness of God. Why is this important for us to remember and to lean on in these days? Because we can and must know that God has purposes. He's not slack. In fact, I'll dabble into next week's verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9. through 9. Let me read it. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now we'll dig into more what that verse is saying. But this is a picture of the Lord's kindness. Why, 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 why would God allow scoffing to continue? Why has there been two, two millennia of scoffing? What, why did he wait for decades in Genesis chapter 6, but now he's waiting 2,000 years and maybe more? Friends, God is being profoundly patient with the world. And so that means that we can trust his good purposes. With him, a thousand years is as one day, and a day is a thousand years. So therefore, I can have compassion on a scoffing world around me because just as God is merciful with the scoffing world, I can be merciful with the scoffing In fact, I must be merciful with the scoffing world. And when I look at God's mercy and patience and long-suffering with the world, I can't stay there long because I have to see and turn it within and see how patient and merciful and long-suffering God has been with me. Friends, we should have great humility as we look at the patience of God. 
as we stare in the promise of his return, God was patient with us. And therefore we must thank him for that and be patient with the world as we live like Noah in the days of scoffing, building our boat, discipling our children, loving our spouses, living ordinary lives, fastening together pieces of wood, spiritually speaking, that a scoffing world that God has called to himself, whomsoever might come and find refuge. That's our task. Not to complain on the internet, but to hold fast to God. Let's pray. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? I'm not. I am the ringleader of the hypocrite brigade. So forgive me. I am so easily discouraged by the scoffing of the world. I need to remember that you've spoken that you have acted and are acting and that you are patient because there's coming a day when Jesus will come again. And our only hope on that day is not that we're Americans, not that we have this view or that view, but our only hope on that day will be whether or not we are in the ark, which is Christ. And really on that day, all that will really matter is how much our lives served to point other people to the ark of Christ as well. Lord, help us with this, I pray. As we respond now in song and prayer and worship and repentance and joy, help us with this. In Jesus' name, amen.